0: way to do this. Let me show you a better
1: way.
0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 19th, 2018. This is episode 2206 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday show, so it's a listener feedback by call show. So there's a call show. You pick your phone up, you mash the numbers, 866-65-THINK, eight six six sixty five. think Or you go to the uh, website, survivalpodcast.com. You can click on contact and use the speak pipe to send us a call through the magic of the interwebs. No matter how you do it, call from a quiet area, ask your question or make your point up front, then give us the details. We'll do what we can to help you out. Of course, this is a podcast, not a live show, so if you pick the phone up and call now while you're listening, there ain't going to be nobody there. It's a a voice message service that will send me your voice message as an email attachment, as a .wav attachment, or actually a .mp3 attachment, and uh, we'll get you on the air if we can. We don't get them all on the air, but we get an awful lot of them on the air, especially the ones that follow the procedure. So what do we got today? We have is social media about to fractionalize and who will win or lose, and is it good or bad? Some thoughts on that. Thoughts on cash-only surgery facilities. This is really a call for help, for advice for a listener, because I don't have a lot of knowledge on this one, but you'll see what it's all about when I play it. And thoughts on selling gray market eggs, right? Selling eggs when you ain't opposed to. Uh, As an anarchist, how do I feel about that? As an agorist, how do I feel about that? You might already imagine my answer. More on the Uber economy from a listener living it. Another listener is getting his ARC side hustle on. We'll talk about that, and I'll give you a few thoughts about where cryptocurrency is headed at this point. Question on when it's too late to start pepper seeds indoors or otherwise for your climate. Thoughts on using hot water to clean storage bottles and advice that I've given before on that from someone with a little bit of knowledge on the subject. And another positive story of a concealed carry, a concealed carry encounter with police from one of our listeners. So we got all that and more coming up in just a bit. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and take a look at this year in history. Actually, a year in history. Uh, That year would be the year 121, and we have Hadrian's Wall. He's the still relatively new emperor who's traveling all across the empire instead of hanging out in Rome. Contributed by David Verne, we have Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian visits Britain this year for the same purpose in Germania, to instill discipline and morale in the soldiers. There had been a small revolt after Trajan's death, and while it was crushed, it was worrying to Roman authorities. The most dangerous tribe was the Brigantes, a tribe that the Romans considered to be a sleeping menace. In order to weaken the potential revolt risk, Hadrian orders the construction of a stone wall that bisected Brigantes' territory and bisecting the island of Britain. The 73-mile wall that will come to be known as Hadrian's Wall had watchtowers at every mile, and a fort every five miles, similar to the fortifications in Germania. The wall was not meant to defend against invasion. It served to force trade and movement through Roman checkpoints, allowing the Romans to monitor the Brigantes uh, <clears throat> and any other problematic tribes. Nothing like this had ever been built in Britain before, and the wall, which was whitewashed to an ivory color, also acted as a reminder of who ruled the land. My take by David Verne. Hadrian would have been surprised to learn that the thing the people would remember about him 2,000 years later was a wall in the most remote province of the empire. Hadrian funded building projects across the empire and made great contributions to Greek culture and philosophy. Even though he had many more important, significant achievements, it will be Hadrian's wall and the foundations that still exist today that will be his defining achievement. We have many achievements and significant events in the modern era, but Hadrian's wall leaves me wondering. What random achievement or event will be considered our era's defining moment two thousand years from now, indeed, I think maybe the reason things like a wall uh, get remembered as an achievement is because there's something to look and see it's still there i mean that, that's what that's what this seems like to me it 's not like this wall probably had that significant of an impact on history itself, but it's there, and you know people looked at it long after Rome was gone from Britain and remembered what it was, so it stayed in people's minds that's just my thoughts on that and you know, whatever lasts 2,000 years uh, and still is able to be seen and interpreted in some way uh, will probably be what people remember about us in 100 years, 1,000 years, 2,000, et cetera. if there's people still here, if we don't, you know, annihilate ourselves with our stupidity. I, I put a picture up on Facebook the other day and said, I've lost all hope for humanity. My wife got me a new pair of shoes, and when I took the tags off them, there was a warning label. And that warning label told you the proper way to ride a moving walk at an airport or an escalator. Yeah, really. Like shoes come with a warning label about what to do if you get on an escalator. And you just wonder, like, okay, so how long is this warning label going to get? Because I'm sure people fall down stairs or slip on floors, etc. So are we going to warn people of every single thing that can go wrong with a pair of shoes? As if they can't figure out how to live their own life? Will somebody find one of those labels 2,000 years from now and look back and wonder how the hell they did manage to survive when we were their ancestors? Who knows? With that, let me remind you before we get into the show today that one of the ways you can help support us is to join the member support brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. You get a bunch of great benefits. You help support the show. That's all I'll say about it today. So we can get into your questions for me on the Think Line. Again, to call in for a show like this, eight six six sixty five 65 think eight six six sixty five 65 think Remember, next week is all rewinds. I'm going to be living free in Tennessee with Nicole Sauce. So um, you, if you call in this coming week, you probably won't hear yourself till next week. I also need questions for the expert council. Before we take this first call, a couple little announcements. I put out a post today with a whole bunch of stuff. And I just want to kind of mention it on the air for you today. To let you know what's going on. So number one, travel plans. Not this travel plan, but in June, I'm going on vacation with my wonderful, beautiful wife. We are looking for a house sitter or house sitters. There's details in the post that we put out today called an update from updates from Jack. And uh, basically, you can come here, hang out here. You don't have to be here all day or anything like that. But we need you to check on stuff, you know, in the morning, in the evening, take care of the dogs, uh, let the dogs out, stuff like that. And uh, basically, it is a, a spend the night type of thing. So you'd be staying here to take care of the dogs at night. The old man dog, he just can't make it through the night no more without being let out at some point. So, and, and it just, you know, it is kind of like we want somebody living here while we're gone with everything that we have going on. Um, and when I say how sitters, there's a couple of ways that could mean that. One is we've had a situation where we've done this before. Somebody's like, I can do like six days of the ten. Notice I can do five. Or whatever, and we just have them handed off to each other. So one person shows up, gets a briefing for the other. So even if you couldn't do a full 10 days, if you'd like to consider us using you for that, let us know by email. Put TSPC house sitter in the subject line. Email me at at com and let me know. Uh, I would really appreciate getting this squared away. My wife's far more worried about it than me, but uh, yeah. Um, And it's a pretty cool gig. You got our outdoor kitchen, you got our big porch, you got our hot tub, you got Our pool, and on top of all that, we're not gonna pay a lot, but we're gonna pay you for it. We'll pay 50 bucks a day for someone to come here and basically have a a staycation, I guess you'd call it. Uh, Another thing, just it's you know, whenever I lose a pet, I always like to mention it on air uh, kind of a tribute to them. We had a little cat named Alice, she was our dumb cat. I say that with affection and love, but she was um, partially blind, severely cross eyed, about 90% deaf, and not the sharpest tool in the drawer. But she was our cat, and she was a sweet little cat, and we had her for God somewhere between twelve and fourteen years i 'd have to actually figure it out, but it 's a long time and uh, she was just done yesterday morning when I woke up. I thought she was actually just going to go ahead and fall over and die, and she wouldn 't so we took her to the vet and had her put down yesterday so just kind of a tribute to to a you know a, a member of our household, part of our family. Little Alice will miss her, but we won't miss her litter box. I'll tell you that. She'll be the last inside cat we'll ever have, according to Dorothy. And I believe Dorothy's right about that. Uh, we do have some cool stuff going on at Tong for breakfast. Uh, I've got stuff out about that today, too. And we need questions for the expert council. So all of that stuff is kind of some updates for you today. And a thank you. I mean, I, I always need to do this more often, I think. Um, I just want to take a moment to say thank you. Today I walked around my property and took some pictures of my various aquaponic systems. Everything is just beautiful. I'm just amazed at how things are going this year. But this is just one of so many blessings that Dorothy and I have in our lives because of you guys. Uh, so to all of you who have supported me on the last almost 10 years in this insane journey, at the beginning of today's show, let me say thank you so very much for your support. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take the first question. Again, this one is about social media. Uh, I'll go ahead and hear from the caller now.
1: Hi, Jack. This is Bob. Uh, I have a question on the new, uh, social media coming up. I just saw a good article on BuzzFeed today, uh, talking about the social media platforms are seeing a lot of splintering, and they actually see that as being a, a trend that's coming up, and there's gonna be more social media, independent social media groups going into specific topics. And I was just wondering which ones that you may have heard of, uh, that are going into the uh gun rights gun ownership gun nut uh, area and into homesteading i know you've set up recently a MeWe channel uh, i've heard of gungroupie uh dot .org and just wondering what else you've heard of and what you think may have a chance of lasting thank you
0: so, yeah, and he did send an article. I'm not going to really read it. I do have a link to it. It's called What Comes After the Social Media Empires. And the basic concept is that a lot like Rome or other European empires, the social media dominance of things like Facebook and YouTube um, overall seems to have hit a high tide, where at one point it looked like you know Facebook and YouTube might become the Internet, uh, and not so much. And then things are going to start to fractionalize and fall apart. It is from BuzzFeed. So, you can tell it's very anti right wing, and they make a lot of, you know, snide remarks to me anyway about like the alt right, and really because of not, I don't care if they make snide comments about the alt right, honestly, but they lump the right in as the alt right. Like, all, of course, you're all of you people on social media that are alt right, crazy ass friggin' Nazis and stuff like that, and gun nuts and what have you. Um, and there's, there, there is a couple things that particularly stood out to me, though. Um, on one, they were talking about the kind of the alt right people, and they said, "Will they be?" A-? They went to some other similar, like a, a, a Twitter clone, and uh, said, "Would would they be able to survive without having anybody to troll?" I, I, I don't know that they intended to make a good point, but they did. And and I'll come back to it with my overall thought about this fractionalization and change, um, and things. The other thing they said is the big advantage that sites like uh, Facebook have is all your friends are already there. All your friends and family are already there. And with the exception of people that don't have an account at all, most people that are online at all have a Facebook account or an Instagram account. And that was the two they mentioned that you kind of already had that going. Plus, mainstream media gives them a lot of pump. And, and you know, even though they claim to be competitors with them, they're always using content from these, these uh, networks. And they're always talking about content from these networks. So that's, that's a major advantage. That's a valid point. Uh, but then there was this interesting little snippet, like in almost three-quarters of the way through the article, that just shows the ignorance, blatant ignorance. He said, And it's like in a little parenthesis, it's like an aside. It says, uh, Can I write this whole article without selling you on blockchain, which has no obvious connection to the decentralization, despite frequent linkage to the words? I can. That's because you're an idiot. That's because you're an idiot. So... And, and that, gets, that actually is great though because it gets me into the crux of my opinion on this. I think these people that are setting up like, you know, Homestead Tube or Gun Tube or whatever, you know, God bless you. Good luck. Go for it. I, I, I hope you have the best of luck there. I, I really do, and I hope it works out. And you know, it is the internet, and it's as easy as changing a channel on a TV. If, if the content I want to see is on Gun Tube today, and YouTube tomorrow, and DTube the next day, that's fine. That's fine. Where blockchain plays in this is things like DTube, which makes the content incapable of being taken down. Who are you going to send a takedown notice to? Really? Uh, and, and what are you going to do if they don't take it down? You're going to shut down their server? You can't do that because it's decentralized. And that also brings me to the crux of what's really the problem here. I don't think that people are leaving Facebook because there's too many liberals on Facebook. That's not why I think people want to leave Facebook. I think people want to leave Facebook because they feel like it's being run by liberals. And I don't even think that in of itself is the problem. They feel like liberals are pushing their agenda through the platform, censoring speech, deciding who and what can be seen, labeling you something you are not. Like I was labeled a a, uh, a definite, it wasn't definite, it was another word they used, almost like extreme conservative in my political profile. Yeah, Jack Spirico, the anarchist, is extremely conservative. Why? Because that's how their algorithm works. I don't think people, people want to be labeled by a communications platform. They don't want their data stolen. But what they really don't want is censorship. Even though I, I completely agree that the platform has the right to censor itself. If, if, if Facebook wants to just say, we are completely down in the wool liberal progressives and that's all we tolerate here. I think Facebook has every right to do that. I don't think it will work well for them. If YouTube, Google wants to say no gun videos whatsoever on the YouTube platform, I think they have every right to do that. I dared them to do it a couple weeks ago, didn't I? They won't because they're cowards, because they're afraid of this very thing. Nobody cares when they put up a gun video that somebody comes by and says, I don't like guns, because you have the ability to either engage with that person or block them from your channel. It's not that the other side's there, too, arguing with people. People like to argue. People like to debate. We learn things about each other from it. I certainly learn things from it. People say, you don't win a debate on Facebook. Well, first of all, I have. I've had people completely change their mind by laying out a logical case and and setting them in the right direction. Now, generally, this is not the extreme liberal or the extreme conservative, but even some cases of that. But more importantly for me, I learn what people really think. Because I've learned that people think completely idiotic on some of this stuff. And like, then it challenges me, is it really idiotic or I just think it's idiotic? So I look into it and go, no, that's idiotic. But then I know what I'm dealing with with people. That doesn't bother me. And if I don't like that person, block, done. It's the control. It's the control. And this is why I think that it's not going to be like a gun tube or a Homesteaderville video channel or whatever um, that's going to win out. It's going to be a platform. This is why I like MeWe. It's going to be a platform where the guy says, hey, this is what I do. This is what I think. I don't care what you do or think. It's your business to talk to whoever you want to, however you want to do it. It's it, it. The platform should be as neutral as a phone. If I don't want to talk to you, I don't take your phone call. Jack, this is Dustin. If I do want to I talk want to, thank to you, you for I take your phone call. If you want to talk to me, you call me and I answer. Coin. But we disagree. Bounty programs AT&T I listen says, "Hey, you guys can't talk about Jack's new life. You guys can't talk about the fact that the president sucks arc. or the president's school. Unfortunately, stupid. I'm just the phone the level of program, but now, I do know again, how to write, I think these platforms have a right currently because it's not exactly the same. same. Some of the I'm not, not talking about what they should or should not be able to do. I'm talking about what people want on both sides, by because if you're censoring conservatives and enough of them leave, it's only matter of time you start censoring liberals, not liberal." So that has or been a, a very nice little, little side gig, and also, and I think what people want to do is be able to speak their mind, so just communicate with their engage with people that want to engage with them, which is in turn earning me more money that the platforms you have that you guys to really win. I'm not saying some of these niche ones might not be successful. Hey, if all the great gun content is one place and you're a gun guy, why wouldn't you go there to consume content? But when I look at my YouTube subscriptions. There's guns, there's gardening, there's cooking, there's even stuff that comes from somewhat leftist-leaning people that I find entertaining, like college humor. Uh, or, and uh, there's like some very centrist stuff like J.P. Sears that does all the f- crazy videos, you know, what, what if what, if ve- what if meat eaters were like vegans and stuff like that, how to be a social disorder. I, 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 I know J.P. and I don't agree 100%. I don't care. I find it entertaining. Adam Ruins Everything is another example of a channel where I'm, I'm sure the guy's politics and mine are diametrically opposed, but where he's right, he's right, and I like the interesting points that he makes when he's right. So I don't want to wall myself off on anarcho-tube where everybody completely agrees with me. First of all, I believe that part of my job in what I do and how I communicate is to educate people and convince them of at least considering alternative views. Okay, not necessarily accepting them, but considering them and understanding the people on the other side are real decent people. They're not all scum like you've been led to believe by the TV and your political party. And everybody has a reason for why they believe what they believe. Sometimes that reason is ignorance. Most of the people in the anti-gun world, the reason they believe what they believe. Notice I didn't say stupidity. It's ignorance. You know this means ignorance and stupidity. You can cure ignorance. You can't fix stupid, in the words of Ron White. So I think the future of social media is going to be places where people can do what social media was in the beginning and what made it successful. When Twitter started, you could do damn near anything on Twitter, and no one did shit. When Facebook started, you could could control your data. It wasn't all decimated out to other people. Disseminated, I'm sorry, decimated, right? It wasn't all disseminated out to other people. And you could say, pretty much, and do anything you wanted. And I think that the, 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 that did lead to a point where certain thresholds started being crossed. Like, hey, here's a guy murdering somebody on live feed on Facebook. And I think what some of these new social platforms are saying is, as long as it's legal. And I think some of them are saying, as long as there's no victim. And great. And I think that like, for that to really work, then this is where the ignorance of BuzzFeed, which is not difficult to define at all or find, um, comes out. The way you get there is you do it with a blockchain technology. It doesn't have to have anything to do with a cryptocurrency, which makes it where you can't shut it down because it's decentralized. So when I put up content and the government decides, we don't want him to be able to say that anymore. Tough shit. Take it down. Well, we can't. Tough shit. Or the Chinese government says, we don't want our people to be able to hear that or see that. Tough shit. Right? I'm sorry. You don't get to make that decision anymore. And, and this is the future of social media. And it will be social platforms like Amiwi, but I think it will also be other platforms that are completely independent, decentralized, and autonomous, and allow people to basically not isolate themselves, but run with their tribe and interact with other tribes on the edges to, to, to move more like a swarm, to be more like a virtual nation. And, in fact, I think that's the eventual place this goes. Who gets to win? I have no idea. But I think it's going to be far less the gun channel or the gun network but a gun tribe on a universal platform because just because you're not a gun person doesn't mean I don't have anything to say to you that's positive. Because maybe you're really great at growing food. And if we can get past the fact that we disagree about this thing, we can share what we have in common. And honestly, if you hate guns, but you have no desire to take my gun away from me, I don't give a shit that you hate guns. I'm totally okay with that. That's fine. You know, I don't like Brussels sprouts. I hate Brussels I think they suck. And you can tell me all your favorite ways to cook them. I don't like them. And here's what I'm going to say. I have no desire to prevent you from eating Brussels sprouts. So my dislike of Brussels sprouts should have no bearing on, on our relationship whatsoever. And if you don't like steak, I think that's crazy talk, but that's okay. There's more steak for me. Hopefully you don't like bacon either. We can have dinner all the time now. You see what I'm saying? And I think that's where we're really headed for a future. I think it's less a fractionalization and less of a a breakup and more of an evolution. What made this media successful was the fact that anybody could say anything to anyone And people chose who to and not to interact with. And when that power hand decided to start altering that and how that equation worked out, how people were compensated, etc., then it's like, you know what, screw you. And this article's like even surprised that like people were able to turn up a platform that was really awesome in just a couple days. Well, no shit. It's not hard to do now, is it? It's code. It can be copied. It can be manipulated. It's easy. You can buy software for for 50 bucks that turns a WordPress site into a mini Facebook in 10 seconds. In fact, one of them's free. It's called Buddy Press. You install it, boom, there's all kinds of peripheral things you can put onto it. Anything you want to do, you can make it do. But will anybody show up? And I think the way you get people to show up is to make a, a platform that's universally appealing to the liberal, the democrat, to the conservative, to the progressive, to the libertarian, to the anarchist. And I think that's... For now what me we is doing that's why I have a presence there. Let's take another call.
2: Hi, Jack. My name is Mike. I'm from Washington State. Uh, I have something that you and the community may help with. I've got a cancer. Uh, that diagnosis just happened. I've been aware for a while that there are a number of centers, number of surgery centers throughout the country that take cash only trying to cut the insurance business out of the loop. And that those prices tend to be a lot better. Uh, the first one was, uh, surgerycenterok.com out of Oklahoma City. I understand that there's a bunch of them scattered throughout Texas. Do you or any of your listeners, uh, have any feedback or knowledge of these, these, uh, cash pay surgery centers? Um, you know, feedback on how effective they are and do they do what they say. I'm assuming they do. They've been around 10 years now. Anyhow, uh, I appreciate your listening, and uh, we'll keep doing the same for you. You take care. Bye.
0: First, uh, I, I'm very, very sorry to hear a cancer diagnosis for anybody, um, and it, it's it's life-altering, and I, I wish you the best on your journey and I and I hope that you find a way to to be, you know, something that really sucks. But more and more people are beating it every day. On your question about um, this type of uh, a facility, I don't have any direct knowledge, but I can't believe that you would go to anywhere where you could get advanced surgical techniques performed and and have them be hacked, you know, hack jobs or something like that. I, you know, they're talking about licensed medical doctors and licensed medical facilities and things like that. So my gut is it would be fine. And it, but if anybody has any experience with these, um, let me know. And I'm going to forward this to Doc Bones, but I'm going to be gone for a week. And I'm doing two shows today, and I'm gone, man. So uh, I wanted to get this out in, in case anybody else could help. So what I would say is check this up, check the episode you know, over the next couple of days and see if anybody comments. And if you have any, way, any feedback for this person, Please don't email me. This is not a good time for, that to make, you know, for me to make sure. I don't even have their email, okay? All I have is their, their voicemail you just heard. So comment on the episode with what you know, and, and maybe that can be helpful. And, and again, I, I wish you the best, and, and I'd like to know more about this myself. I'd never, I've heard of Cash and Doggers. i never really heard of this type of a thing, so I'm going to do some more research. But you know I'm gone from this moment for, like, the next week. Really, even though there's an episode tomorrow, it will be done today. Okay, so hopefully someone can give us some good feedback on that. Let's take another one. This is one on uh, gray market eggs. Yes, it's a real thing.
3: Hi, Jack. This is James.
0: I was wondering
1: how you feel about violating codes, let's say, that from having you from doing certain things like selling eggs, say, at your residence. I live in a suburb of Memphis, Tennessee, and... Selling eggs from your house in this residential area is forbidden. I looked in the code. But I have some quail, and I'd like to film extra eggs. Is that something you would kind of just do and not tell anybody? How how do you feel about that situation and bending the areas? Because I, like you, am an anarchist at heart, but I'd rather not run too much afoul with these people. Anyway, any help is
0: appreciated. Thank you. Well. I can't tell you what to do because I don't want to say go ahead and sell your eggs and have no idea exactly how you're going to do that, and then you get slapped with a big fine or some you know there's some sort of major uh, you know uh, issue. Next thing we you know, we're fighting for your freedom on Facebook or something. I so I, I don't want to say what you should do, but what I think I'll absolutely say, I think telling one human being that that something they own cannot be sold to another human being um, is unethical at at, at a high level. So I think that the code that you are dealing with is an unethical, and I think unethical is not even a harsh enough word. It is an immoral code. It is immoral to tell somebody, like, okay, I have a few chickens, and I have some extra eggs, and Bob down the road wants to buy them from me. And uh, the, the state will use force at the point of a gun, and that's what they will do, I'm not saying you'll get SWAT rated, though some of that kind of shit has happened. And probably not likely. Some, some poindexter will show up at your front door and write you a ticket. But if you don't pay it and don't cease action, and then eventually they will send people with guns. Or you'll get pulled over for a taillight or something. And what would have been a ticket will now be they'll haul you in and hold you and extort money from you. And men with guns will do that. And if you resist, they'll beat the shit out of you, spray you with mace, tase you. And if necessary, shoot you because you sold somebody an egg. And people always say that's like hyperbole and going, it's not really the way it works. It is the way that it works. It is the way that it works. Any law in our country, if it is willfully defied long enough, will result in somebody pointing a gun in your face. So before we make a law or a code or a restriction, we should say to ourselves... Is this something that's important enough, even if we believe in the state, even if we believe we need this, even if we believe in my social contract, in my roads and my schools, right? Even if we believe in that, that person should ask the question, would I personally be willing to point a gun at someone to make them comply with this? Because if you would not, you should not support it. Because just like if I hire a hitman to shoot you in the head, I'm just as guilty of your murder as he is. If you are willing to support a measure that someone will put a gun at somebody's face and legally force compliance in something that you support, you are as responsible for that as they are. You are. If you'll support it. If you don't support it, then you're not. Because it's out of your control. If that makes sense. Now, so with that being said, what would I do? I would sell my damn eggs to whoever I wanted. But I would also not be a dumbass about it. I would not set up, you know, Joe Blow's uh, homegrown backyard eggs website .com, and I wouldn't publicize myself as an entity. I would talk to friends and family and friends of friends and say, "Hey, this is what I have. This is how much they are," and I would do business like that. Because here's the thing: there is no world in which I see, at least at this time, where you and a buddy are standing there and you hand a guy a carton of eggs, and he hands you five bucks or whatever it is and a SWAT team comes roping through a window or anything like that what they will do is they will respond to complaints so if you have blue hairs and nosy people and stuff like that and you're obvious about what you're doing then you know then you can have a problem the other thing though is if it looks like like i don't know how many eggs you're talking about either here like how many birds you have or what have you but um if it looks like like every day there's twenty or thirty cars pulling up in your driveway for five minutes and leaving, you might attract law enforcement on suspicion you're dealing drugs. And even though you're not, that's just not something you want because that's that's the kind of place that ends up getting you know popped in the drug world. And it's never the seedy crack house that everybody knows where it is. It's the blue collar, white collar areas, you know, in the nice suburbs where people are doing business with dope that way that they get caught. Again, I don't think those people should go to jail either. Honestly consensual transaction between two consenting adults there's no 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 victim but it does, again what is versus what i want and we always have to be pragmatic but if it was me and i had a couple dozen chickens or something like that and i had a surplus of you know 10 dozen eggs a week that i could sell and cover all my feed costs or something like that and i could find people that wanted to buy them i'd sell them who the hell is going to say anything yeah this is gray market This is not a black market. There's a difference. Here's the black market difference. The substance itself is illegal. That's a black market. So if I sell you meth, and you're driving down the road, you get pulled over by a cop, and you're methed up, and the cop deals with you and goes, hey, are you on meth? And you go, no, no, man, no, no. Okay, yeah, you are. Let's get out of the car. And and, and checks you and finds a package of meth that you just bought from me. What's he going to say? Where'd you get it? I don't remember, man. I don't. And hey, you know, this is enough that you could go for intent to distribute. Was this all for personal use? Yes, for personal use, man. Yeah. I use a lot of them. Um, I really do. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, if the only way I'm going to believe you is if I know where you got this. Because dealers don't rat other dealers up, but you're just a user, so who is this guy? Right? And all of a sudden, it could come back to you. See, that's the. And black market things tend to create violence around them. All of, Not all the violence, but much of the violence in the drug market is due to the fact that it's an illegal black market. So, you sell, uh, you sell some eggs to uh, Jake. Jake's got two dozen eggs. He's cruising down a road. He does a California stop, right? Rolls through a stop sign. Woo! Cop pulls him over. He's got eggs. Where are you coming from? What if he tells him the complete truth? I'm oh, a buddy's house. Okay. What were you doing there? Oh, he sells eggs, so I bought some eggs off him. Okay. Did you know you rolled through that stop sign? No, I did not. Okay, and you're gonna have a you're not gonna have a talk about. He doesn't give a shit. You don't have time to care about that, right? So gray market stuff doesn't create a problem because it's there. It creates a problem because of how it's delivered. Because the substance itself is legal. No one really gives a shit that you have some eggs, except the Poindexter's and the Blue Hairs and the Code people. So you have to. So if you're gonna do any kind of a gray market, you have to be smart about it. This is actually a major agorist principle. The agorist activism is as many people doing shit like this as possible. I encourage this behavior, but I'm not going to tell you to do it. There's a difference between encouraging something and saying you should. Because encouraging means you should understand the risks, the rewards, and the totality of the situation. I would want to know, well, what happens to me? What happens to me? I don't want to say exactly what, but there's a certain law in Texas It says, I can't do a certain thing in a certain place. And when I found out what the penalty for that was, it was rather minor. And when I thought about what the consequence of not doing it could be, if I needed to be able to do it, that was major. And I decided from now on that I will do that thing where I'm not supposed to and just not talk about it. I know that sounds very cryptic, and it is for obvious reasons, but because the risk is minimal... And the danger, or the risk, on the other side of it, is extreme. So, just you know, think about that, and always do a risk reward assessment in any place where you are going into the gray world. What's it going to cost you? Um, Vin Armani was on. He talked about how like um, un- unmedallion taxi cab drivers in New York looked at this. It's like nine hundred thousand dollars for a medallion, and it's like a, a eight thousand dollar fine if you get caught driving without one. I'm better off driving without one. If I get caught, I'm still ahead, you know, nine hundred and something thousand bucks. So I don't care. So you got to look at risk reward ratios, man. You got to, am I willing to suffer the consequences if it goes south? And if not, don't do it. Let's take another one. And as we do, let me remind you kind of what the backstory on this is. This is in relation to another person that asked in an earlier show if they were very low paid as a wage earner, they didn't make much money, and they wanted to go into the side hustle world, the Uber economy, you know, the rovers and the Ubers and stuff like that, um, should they make the leap? Should they give it a shot? And I give my opinion on that. Here's a follow up opinion on that same question.
2: Hey
3: Jack, this is Matt from Missouri. Uh I don't know all of Andrew's uh
0: details, but I would say man, do it. I don't know his market, but St. Louis is our market. I'm about an hour and a half from there. It's worth it for me to spend the hour and a half to drive to St. Louis. If I can work two days a week driving for Uber and make an equivalent of what I made working a 40-hour job, which I also had to drive to St. Louis to get because I'm in a small town, and, yeah, people are happy to have $11 an hour jobs. Even some of the most skilled jobs, I was a union carpenter for a long time. Even the most skilled jobs where I
3: live now, they don't pay anything. So, take take that for what it's worth. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I I completely agree. If the numbers work out that way, if the numbers work out to where you could work three days a week versus five and make more money, then you have that extra two days to go on vacation, to spend time with your kids to look for a better career opportunity, to study, to learn, to develop a business of your own. I mean, or to just say, this is enough. This is sufficient for my life. And I think that, you know, we talk a lot about hunter-gatherer lifestyle and trying to recreate that in our own backyards. I've talked about that a lot lately. You're going to hear more about it next week in some of the Rewind shows, especially the new content on it. But there's beyond the concept of, well, uh, the hunter gatherer goes out and gets his food. There's a philosophy within the hunter gatherer that I think you can see here if you look for it with pattern recognition, which I think is such a valuable skill to have pattern recognition. So, what that is, is the hunter gatherer doesn't gather and hunt beyond their needs. Now, if they live in a climate that's seasonal or where there's ebbs and flows of availability, they may get a little, they do the ant thing, right? A little bit more than we need today to store for when we can't just go get it. But in general, they figure out, but in general, they figure out, you know, how much do we need to be happy, to have what we want. And they do that much, and if they have to do a little bit more to put up for tomorrow, today, they'll do that too, but they have that limit. And once it's been done for the day, Well, it's time to take a nap. It's time to stretch. It's time to walk over to the other hut and talk to grandma. It's time to play with the kids. It's time to take a swim. It's time to take another nap. It's time to go contemplate the world under a tree. It's time. You know, I mean, that's that is actually the hunt. People think of the hunter gatherer lifestyle as being very rugged and individualistic and difficult and hard. But the true hunter gatherer lifestyle, as long as there's enough abundance to support it, is actually. A very easy life, ninety percent of the time, and extremely st- stressful and dangerous the other ten. You know, especially back in the day when someone was trying to eat you or chomp you, or another tribe was trying to kill you. It, it's in a ways, it's a lot like combat, except without the boredom. But you'd say, say combat is ninety percent boredom and ten percent terror, right? And the ancient hunter gatherers lived a life very much like that, except the boredom was actually enjoyment in in many ways. What what is there to do that I feel like doing? And everything revolved around family and tribe and tradition. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about Native American tribes. I'm talking about all of these indigenous hunter-gatherer societies. It was never about you know, the concept of how much can I acquire. It's do I have enough to be happy and be sufficient in my role, in my family, in my clan, in my group, in my tribe, and as a human being. And things like the Uber economy... And all of these different ways where people can go do something for a set period of time that benefits somebody else in a mutually beneficial way and then opt out otherwise. And I don't have to come do this tomorrow. If I, if I gathered enough today, I could take tomorrow off. I don't have to ask somebody. I don't have to put in for vacation time. I'm not going to get a, a, a person that once a year reviews my performance and only does it because they have to and knows not to rate me too highly because then I might want too much of a raise. I'm getting rated every time I go do something by the person that actually benefited from me. And because I want to be able to earn more, I want to do the best I can every time so I get as many of those ratings as possible. And this is very much, instead of being a hunter-gatherer gathering fish and berries and nuts and some meat, we're now a hunter-gatherer. That's It's actually like a... In fact, You know what? I I think I would coin that phrase right now, thinking about it that way. The Uber economy is actually the hunter-gatherer economy, where the individual is able to determine how much they need for themselves and do sufficient to have that, and then do what they will with their other time. Whether it's educate themselves, build a business, spend time with their kids, sit in the side of a pool, take a trip down to the coast on their motorcycle, whatever it is. It's the hunter-gatherer economy. That's pretty cool. Let's uh, let's take another one. This one on another side hustle thing with ARC. And I'll have a few thoughts on cryptocurrency when we take this one.
3: Jack, this is Dustin. I wanted to thank you for turning me
0: on to the ARC coin community bounty programs. I'd listened to another uh, caller who had called in and had mentioned that they were writing code for ARC. Unfortunately, I'm just in the pre K level of learning how to program, but I do know how to write. And I am currently writing some of the articles and uh, development manuals for the Arc community as a side hustle, and have been earning um, Arc $150 or so per per article or so. So that has been uh, a very nice little little side gig, and also within a community that I think has great potential. So I'm just adding to my Arc wallet, and which is in turn earning me more money that uh, that is staked there. So I'd like to thank you again, and have a great day. You know, that's interesting. I didn't plan this when I selected these calls, but now we have the opportunity to think about the concept of the hunter-gatherer economy that is the Uber economy, the Uber-like economy, and how it plays in with cryptocurrency. So here you have another guy. He looks at Ark and says, I think this is really interesting, and I like this, and I understand it. And says, but I really can't code at the level this other guy I heard on Jack's show does. But I'm going to reach out anyway and talk to them and see what I can do. And they say, hey, you know what? You're good at communicating. If you do this, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you in this much Ark. And this is money they created uh, out of nothing. I mean... All money is created out of nothing. Whether you you believe that or not, that's the truth. All money is created out of nothing. The value of a currency, and I've said this for 10 damn years now I've been saying this, the value of a currency, even before cryptocurrency exists, I said this about the U.S. dollar, is derived from the value perceived and the economy that it's exchanged in. You could use anything from buttons to stones with holes in them. If they can't be counterfeited, if there's confidence that they're not counterfeited and people are willing to use them as a means of exchange, it can be used as money. And what you have here is an electronic validation and security system for exchange because the real value is I get something, you give something. That's the actual value. All the money is is a symbol for it. it's pretty pretty much like a thermal unit. Like, I think this is worth this much. Well, I think that's worth this much too. Okay, let's exchange. We disagree. Okay, we can either negotiate, come to an agreement, or we choose not to do business. This is the free market. But when you start having systems like ARC that are truly, basically, a voluntary oligarchy is the way the proof-of-stake model works. That are moving toward a world where they can be cloned and emulated and used and supported by this core technology, and you apply that to the hunter-gatherer economic mindset, it gets really interesting really fast. Especially when you, now let's go ahead and rope it back in. I didn't plan this; it's just it's just synchronicity. Let's rope r- r- it back into selling the black mar- or the gray market eggs or gray market anything. Doesn't this all get easier? If we're using cryptocurrency and we're acting as our own bank and it's, hey, uh, I need a ride. Hey, I don't have a taxi medallion. Hey, I don't give a shit because I know you and I've read your reviews online on this little platform that was built here. Well, how much do you want to take me over to here? I want to ARC. Okay, here you go. Uh, well, I don't know that I trust that you'll pay me when we get there. Well, I don't know if I pay you if you won't drive away. We'll get in the car. How about a smart contract? Okay, when we get there, this platform will execute and say that I deliver you, and then I'll get paid. I agree with that. Let's go. Interesting. Interesting. Hey, I need some coding work done. Hey, I am a good coder. Are you really? Yeah, read my reviews. Eh, I don't know. They're a little iffy. Hey, what about this? Well, I have a smart contract. When the code's delivered and executes as it's supposed to, I get paid. Hey, I'm okay with that. Do you have a business license? No. Great. I don't give a shit. Don't you start to see how this all starts to play together? It's pretty interesting. Now, cryptocurrency as a whole, it was a bloodbath, wasn't it? I said it was going to be a bloodbath. I had no idea. I did not get this one right. This was way worse than I thought. And, And what happened was the new money went away. And people that were doing business in cryptocurrency that needed to buy things they couldn't buy with cryptocurrency still have to sell their cryptocurrency to buy stuff with dollars or yen or whatever. So there's a lot of cryptocurrency being exchanged but less people willing to buy it. Supply and demand, like any market in the world. Things are starting to turn a corner, aren't they? If you ain't been paying attention, pay attention. Um, this This has been a continuous cycle with cryptocurrency since it started. These shakeouts... At least the world's over, ah! and the next run is always better than the first one. Will it always be? No. There will be a point when all of this has to come to Jesus moment, and there's going to be a few winners and a bunch of losers. I don't think that's the next cycle, but it could be. I don't. I'm not promising you anything here. I'm just saying if you've been on the sidelines thinking, you know, it'd be a good idea to put a few hundred or a few thousand bucks in a cryptocurrency, it's not a bad time. It's not a bad time at all. Anyway, uh, next up, I have a question on pepper seeds. Yeah.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Kelly from North Texas, and my question is, is it too late to start pepper seeds indoors to transplant out into the garden? Details. I got super excited listening to your um, episode on the 12 things that you were planting in uh, the garden that were different and unusual, um, and so I wanted – I got all excited and ordered these peppers, forgetting that I have to grow them out before they can go in the garden. So I ordered late, and now they're here, and I wasn't sure if I could still do that at this point, and it wouldn't be, would they just die in the Texas heat, or am I better off waiting and doing it for some type of fall garden or just saving for next year? So thanks for any advice and for everything you do. Thanks. Bye.
0: You absolutely can still do that. You really can. Let me give you a couple things, though, to think about. Number one, if the varieties you selected are currently available as well-started plants at box stores or nurseries, you will be so far ahead this year, you're probably better off buying plants. If the varieties are not available, but you want to make sure you have some peppers, go buy some varieties that you do want that are available and start your plants. And, and, And That way you can have a staggered harvest. Um, yes, our our brutally hot weather is coming soon, and, and there, there's no doubt about that. Peppers actually like quite a bit of heat, though, but it can certainly be overdone. Starting indoors, great idea. Starting outside, in the ground, not a terrible idea. If you're going to do that, you need a re- reliable source of moisture, right? And that that ground needs to stay wet until that plant has true leaves on it, and then... It needs to say damp down where the roots are. So some sort of drip irrigation. Shade. Peppers actually do really well in shade. About 30% shade is almost perfect. But we had some of our peppers did really good under 60% shade cloth last year, specifically cubanels. So cubanels are a pepper you probably can find available uh, in, in your area uh, as a pre-started plant, and they will also do well in shade. Um you're looking at six weeks for pepper plants generally if they're if they're started right, a little bit of heat underneath them, a little heat mat or something to get them, like, them nice and warm, good lights on them before they're about the size that you would even consider transplanting when we look at six weeks from right now, you know we're looking at putting them out like right before Memorial Day weekend and in Texas it's usually really hot by then and that can be really hard on them but if you set up shade for them and get them, you know, you want to harden them off, you, you'll be all right. But you're really, I mean, the best timeline for peppers is generally about eight weeks. And so my advice is if you're going to start them indoors, start them in fairly large containers. Don't do six packs. You know, do something about the size of, you know, the, when you go buy like a Bonnie's plants, they come in those cups. That's a really good size to start plants and that lets them develop a significant root system and therefore more growth get your lights way close to them so that they grow stocky that's you want you want to put out thick stocky seedlings not long leggy seedlings especially when it comes to peppers long leggy tomatoes as long as it's not extensive it's not you know ridiculous are great because you just bury them all the way in the ground so there's only a couple inches sticking up and they develop huge root systems but peppers don't really work that way even though they're both nightshades so you can certainly do it but I would consider at this juncture to make sure you have peppers this year. Getting some pre-started plants, give that a shot. And hey, don't start them all. Start as many as you need, and then yeah, it might be a really good idea. About oh, I don't know, two weeks in, into July or up to August first, starting another batch for your fall garden. Peppers do great in the fall here. Um, I I I don't know though. I, I think you're better off. Go ahead, start them, and maybe you're better off doing this. If you have any kind of really decent indoor growing area, keep some of them there. Another option, consider something like doing rain gutter grow buckets or something like that so you know you have the moisture. But uh, you would have been... The short answer is you would have been better off starting them about six weeks ago, maybe eight. Uh, So, you know, give yourself a redundancy here and still give it a shot. Let us know how it works out. Uh, Next up, I have... uh, a call on uh, on my method of heat sanitization of, uh, of bottles for various reasons.
1: Hey Jack, this is Dr. Tactical Redneck from Zello. A quick comment on your technique you've mentioned a couple of times recently about using boiling water to sanitize a container. I got told by an inspector at work one time we needed to fix our commercial dishwasher because the water pump wasn't high enough. Didn't think that sounded right it used soap, so I called my dad. My dad is an infectious disease and internal medicine specialist and also spent a number of years as a doctor responsible for the sanitation in one of the larger hospitals in the state. So I figured he knows a thing or two about the subject. What he told me was that the hospital uses 212-degree pressurized steam for all of its surgical utensils. Said if your water hits 212 degrees, and you don't need soap. If it doesn't hit 212 degrees, well, then you just knock all the loose food off your dishes, use soap and water. Now, I figure if 212 degrees is sufficient enough for a scalpel that a doctor is going to use for a heart transplant, it should be good enough to rinse out a container that used to have pasteurized apple juice in it. So, anyway, thanks for everything you do, Zach. bye
0: so I guess my follow-up when it comes to making anything safe with with heat, um, it's not just the temperature, it's duration. So the thing about boiling water, if you boil something, it needs almost no time at all, and it's done. And when you use steam, you're using a direct application of the heat. You know it's a full 212 when it hits it. And this is why it's very good for sterilizing. It's also very good for cleaning. If you go to uh, like an independent jewelry store or something and have uh, jewelry cleaned, they usually clean it with steam. And it works very, very well. However, to pasteurize something, you don't necessarily need 212 degrees. One of the things that people always say is you have to boil water for 10 minutes to make sure it's safe to drink. And that's not true. You have to boil water for zero minutes to make it safe to drink. And the reason why is you actually start pasteurization down in the 140s. But you really start to kick it in about the 160 degree level. And if you bring water to something like 165, 170 degrees, and you hold it there for 10 minutes, you'll pasteurize it. Because the pathogens can handle the temperature in short duration but not long duration. So the reason you only have to boil water for zero, as soon as it boils, it's safe to drink, conserve your fuel if you're in a survival situation, is because it takes a significant amount of time for the water to get from 160 to 212. And every degree that it goes up, the amount of time it needs to be there goes down. So 180 degree water needs a lot less time. It's exponentially less. And 190 degree water needs less. So by the time the water's climbed to 212, It's been over 160 long enough, and it's been at the intervals in between long enough to make the water safe. Now, this goes back to what he's talking about, though, was my advice on storing your water in things like soda bottles, Pepsi bottles, apple juice bottles, and doing it safely. And I said, if you're really worried about it, get a pot or your electric kettle or whatever, get some hot water, take it to a boil, dump it in there, put a lid on it, shake it around, Mind when you open it, you don't get scalded because it will spurt a little bit. Dump it out and then use it. And, and I agree with his assessment and with his father's assessment. Yeah, it's it's safe. Or I wouldn't have said it. And, uh, you know, back to this. If storing water in soda bottles, etc., was dangerous, with as many people as do it, you'd hear about it. Uh, you never hear about this being a problem. And I'm sure there's people doing it in ways where even I would go, that's kind of dumb. Because if you have sticky residue, sugars in there, you know then you can propagate a pathogen. That's for damn sure. So clean them out. You should be good to go. And I think this also came up with the mead-making stuff. And with mead-making, with beer-making, with wine-making, remember, we're not trying to sanitize. I'm sorry, we're not trying to sterilize, which is what we're talking about here. We're just trying to sanitize. We're trying to knock any of the things that we don't really want there way back so that the yeast that we introduce can dominate. And there's nothing, when you make beer, wine, meat, etc., you you end up with an acidity at a certain level and an alcohol at a certain level where nothing that's life-threatening can live in there. That's why people don't die because they made their own beer. That's a lie and a myth spread around prohibition or whatever. You can have problems with certain distillation processes, but that's even really, really rare. That was more the government and they're, yeah, we'll just let that go for another day. Um, so when it comes to brewing, venting, etc., you know, if, if you dump 180-degree water in your fermentation vessel, as long as it's not something that's glassy and going to break, and give it a good shake and dump it out, it's, it's every bit as good as it'll ever need to be. Uh, I have one more today. This is on a, uh, an incident involving law enforcement uh, with a concealed carry holder. And we'll go ahead and hear how that works out.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Paula in Pennsylvania. I'm calling to comment on some advice you had given a few months ago concerning having a concealed carry permit and having an interaction with the police. Last week, I was rear-ended, so I was pulled off the side of the road, and the police showed up, and I did exactly what you said. I handed my identification information cards, Including my concealed carry permit, and I told the officer I have a concealed carry permit. I have a handgun bu- hand in my handbag. He looked at me, smiled, and said, "Terrific, you made my day." He handed me back my concealed carry card and said, "Just don't touch your handbag during our interaction." I did not. And everything was terrific, and I felt good that the air had been cleared, that nothing could be misconstrued or mistaken. So I think your advice was great. Bye-bye.
0: I, I think it, that is a textbook way to handle this situation, especially in your state where you have a duty to notify. And, um, you know, I think that's the result in general that you'll get. I think some people might take exception to, well, don't touch your handbag. Well, you know, I, I would prefer that if I'm talking to an officer on the side of the road for whatever reason, he not sit there and thumb his freaking, his Glock, right? Rest his hand on his Glock, even if he doesn't mean anything by it. And it's just easier that way. It's just safer that way. And, I mean, that's a good advice anyway, because, okay, I've, I've notified you, and you're chill, and you're digging through your handbag because of something I asked for with no concern because I'm okay with it as a cop, my partner comes up and sees over your shoulder. There's a potential for problems there. A would-be-good Samaritan, not maybe in this scenario, but some other scenario, right? So it's just better that we just leave things where they are. And as I said when I took this before, 99% of the time an officer is going to tell you to leave the gun where it is. They're not going to ask you to disarm. In fact, I have a bit of an issue I will always offer if necessary, and I will usually comply. But I have a bit of an issue with that because this is my property, right? And unless you're arresting me, unless I'm suspected of some violent crime or something like that, you're asking me to relinquish my property to you. So my threshold for that is generally common sense, but it's also one of those things like I will not always do everything a cop asks me to do, especially if I know what they're asking me to do is, is wrong. And if they, but if they then threaten me, like I'm gonna arrest you, or you know, don't make me put you on the ground, or whatever, then I'll comply, and then I'll file a complaint, and I'll make sure that they verbalize, hey, you're you're making me do this, even though I don't think I. Okay, fine, then, then we can do that. Uh, I will be filing a complaint. I'd like to speak to your supervisor during this interaction, and, and that's not being a smart ass. And see, by not being a smart ass here, like, well, you know, like if he said, well, don't put your hands in your handbag, and you were like, why not? That that would like. When everything was going great, and you could, you could side rail that really, really fast. But again, I'm back to most law enforcement officers are decent, good men and women that are out there trying to do a tough job that is underappreciated by a lot of people. And especially people in the liberty movement, the anarcho movement, the agorist movement. We act as though we never, we, we, were, we, we, were, we, were, we were expelled from a birth cavity with a giant a on our chest and we knew all the things that we know now and had all the perspective that we knew now the day we were born and, and we all realized, had we not changed our perspective we could very well be doing that job and we would do it, be doing it to the best of our ability so you know when you're dealing with law enforcement you know be smart about it don't volunteer information when you don't when there's no need for it you know, if you if you if you start getting a line of question like where do you come from? What are you doing, etc., I mean, there's a point where we say, listen, I I don't do that, you know. But if if if, if I'm walking down the road, and I see some guy running down the road carrying some chick's purse, and a cop goes out. Did you see anybody? Yeah, he went that way, right? So that's the kind of my litmus test for information as well. I want to see your license and registration, you know. Well, am I walking down the street and ask them all that? There's no. You pulled me over because my taillight was out. You asked for that standard procedure. Here you go. Pretty simple. An estate with a duty to notify. Here's my permit. Here's where my weapon is. What would you like me to do for you? Because, again, it's an immediate de-escalation of concern. Let's say that cop pulls you over. You're a big, burly guy with a beard like me. You've got, you know, your, your, your decals on your truck. And he's looking at this guy and he says, this guy, this guy owns a gun. He might not be a prop, but I know this guy. Owns a gun. I can tell. And you pull up my hey, how you doing, officer? I'm sorry that you had to pull me over whatever. whatever. Blah, blah, blah. Here's my license. Here's my, my carry permit. I do want you to know I'm armed. This is where my weapon is. Keep my hands up here where you can see them. What would you like me to do for you? You think he's thinking this guy wants to shoot me at that point? Nobody that wants to shoot you does that, do they? Right? So any encounter I've ever had similar to that has always been just... Leave it where it is. Keep your hands rocking see them until we're done with this. And if you want the right to carry, then you have to understand, this is something I've talked about a long time ago, and I'll talk about it again, I'm sure, in the future, but rights come with responsibilities. Rights are not absent responsibilities. Now, what people will say is, well, rights come without restriction. That's true, but it don't come without... Without responsibility, and what I mean by that is, I believe that the Second Amendment is clear: shall not be infringed, not shall be infringed a little bit. You may infringe upon certain classifications. You may infringe. No, it's shall not be infringed. That's an absolute, clear, legal use of language. There is no, there is no contract anywhere other than the, the than the, the Bill of Rights where the term shall not be infringed would ever be questioned ever in a court of law. And it's only because it's been politicized. However, that does not mean that because they I know they put restrictions there and they shouldn't be there. We agree. And that's the world we live in. And we have to figure out how we deal with that. But let's say that the Second Amendment was upheld as pure and true and clear legal language that it is. And we said... Anybody, anywhere that's an adult under U.S. law can own any damn gun they want. Period. The end. Done. The way most of us would prefer. Okay? That doesn't mean that I have no responsibility as an owner of that firearm, do I? If I, if someone wants to buy the gun for me, and I say, well, what do you need a gun for? And you go, I'm going to go murder my dad with it. Don't I have a responsibility not to let that person come into possession, at least of my weapon? If I have my gun in my house that's locked. But it's not locked up with trigger guards and shit like that. It's just upstairs in one of my rooms. And somebody breaks in my house, violates my property, and steals it from me. I do not feel I'm responsible for what they do with my gun. If I take my gun, load it, and I live in a suburban neighborhood with a sidewalk where kids play, to make the extreme example so that you understand what I'm saying, and lay that gun there on the ground... And some kid picks it up and shoots himself with it because they don't understand what it is. I bear a tremendous responsibility for that, do I not? Where does this come back to interactions with law enforcement with concealed carry? If, if you assert your right to carry, then you assert that right with the responsibilities commensurate with it. And that means that when you're carrying your gun, you don't run, walk around twirling it loaded like a, like a cowboy on TV for one example. But another responsibility you accept is that there are men out there, whether you think they should be or not, with uniforms and certain privileges under the law as enforcement officers thereof, and you are thereby assuming the responsibility of interaction under the law with them as a carrier of that weapon. Right? Responsibilities. And every right you have comes with responsibilities. I believe unassailantly and the right of free speech. And if you want to tell somebody you think they're ugly as shit, you should be able to do so. If that happens to piss them off and you get punched in the face, maybe you shouldn't have done that. Now, they're the ones that violated the NAP because you didn't really hurt them. But I'm not saying that they're not responsible for hitting you, but I'm saying you do bear some responsibility for getting hit because you chose to use your free speech in a way that wasn't very smart. But as another example... If somebody was right at the edge of a cliff, and there's no danger other than them falling off that cliff, and you go, "Hey, look out!" and they fall off the cliff, don't you bear? That's not free speech. That's an abdication of responsibility. And the, the society with the greatest rights, and the greatest respect for, and adoration of rights, will be the society that is the most civilized and the most responsible. That's why some people say, you know, what you want is a descent to anarchy. No, I want an ascent to anarchy. And I'm willing to wait seven generations or more to get it. I'd just like to start on that path. Because what people say is things like, well, tax is the price that we pay to live in a civilized society. I don't remember who originally said this, but I love it. No, tax is the price that we pay for failing to build a civilized society. The less civilized we are, the more rules, restrictions, regulations, and therefore taxes to enforce that, we will have. The more civilized we become, the less we require force for people to be able to act responsibly. Notice I didn't say do the right thing. The right thing is subjective. Is it right for me to go have a beer when I'm done working today? Most people would say, well, I don't give a shit. There are people that would say, no, that's wrong, you shouldn't drink. It should be illegal. Well, where does that usually come from? People that exercise that right to consume the beverage of their choice and do so in a way that makes them a danger to themselves and others. The lack of fulfilling the responsibility creates resistance, and that's where we end up. And I I, I challenge people to look at every single right they insist that they have and say to themselves, not do I really have this right, because the answer is you probably do. But what responsibility comes with it? What responsibility do I bear, not because I have the right, but because I choose to exercise it? It is in the choice of exercising the right that we incur the responsibility. And the more we choose to exercise the right, the more ways in which we exercise the right, the more ways in which we become responsible like an interconnected web. Interesting, isn't it? Anyway, just something to think about as we wrap this show up. Remember, guys, you can always help support this show, and you can do that by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, you can see all of our reviews, and as long as you shop through tspaz.com, you help the Survival Podcast. I don't have an item of the day reviewed for you today, but if you're looking for anything, there's probably something like you're looking for there it has been reviewed. Check it out and see what's going on. And uh, Remember, you can always help us out, tspaz.com. Bring this to our song of the day. Song of the day today is one of my favorite songs. And it's what I consider a song that kind of starts to earmark the end of an error. And that error is the 1980s glam rock era. And you're like, oh man, no, trust me, you'll probably like this song. I, I've not met many people that don't like this song. And, um, uh, and, and what I mean by the end of it, this song actually came out in 1990 and there were, there was some music that continued in this vein of things. um, into the 90s, but really it was an 80s. Thing. And when you hear this song, if you played this for somebody that was familiar with music from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2010 era, and, and up to from 2010 up till now, and said, but I didn't know this song for some reason, and said, what decade is this song from? They'd say, oh, that's from the 80s. And there was some really amazing music in the 80s. I know, like, everybody that grows up in a decade feels like their decade was the decade, but I feel like the 80s was the decade in a lot of ways. It was like the last decade that young people were actually trusted to go out and see their own shit. And the music really fit with that. And there was a lot of, like, just, you know, kind of pop rock music and um, pop hard rock, pop metal. And a lot of the bands that did this music, they did a lot of that stuff. And this band certainly did. The band is Poison. But every once in a while, they would turn to something that was deep and meaningful, and they would demonstrate that they actually were talented musicians and talented composers composers and artists. And to me, this is an incredible song. And I learned some things about it in looking up the song facts on it for you guys that I didn't know. I didn't know this first part. On Christmas Eve, 1989... Poison lead singer, Brett Michaels, huge Polynesian bodyguard, died alone in his Palm Springs hotel room. His name was Kimo. And much like the rest of the band, he had become heavily involved with alcohol, drugs, and women, which had taken a toll on his health. Kimo was a personal friend of Michael's, and when the Poison vocalist was informed of his mate's death, he reacted by locking himself in his room and writing the song. Kimo can be seen in the video. Now, I knew the next part till we get to the last part of the next part, if that makes sense. I'll I'll tell you when it goes to something I didn't know. The song is not only about Kimo, but also about Brett's cousin Bob, who was wounded in Vietnam. In the June 2010 edition of Rolling Stone, Michael said, this is the part I didn't know. All the songs I write have a bazillion verses. Something to Believe In is one of the only songs to get played on the radio that's over six minutes long. There's an acoustic version somewhere that's 28 minutes long. I didn't know there were more verses to this. In 2003, Poison recorded an acoustic version with new lyrics. It was included in their Best of Ballads and Blues album. I might have to get that. I didn't, I'll have to check it out at least on, on Apple, Apple Radio or something like that. I did not know there was more verses to this song. Um, but definitely, you know, you, it, it my best friend died a lonely man in a Palm Springs hotel room, and that's Kimo. And, you know it's it, it's pretty obvious who that's about i you know, i didn't know that his brother's bob or his cousin's name was bob but i didn't know it was a family member that was the vietnam vet and, and the line's there i mean 22 years of mental tears cries a suicidal vietnam vet who fought a losing war on a foreign shore to find his country didn't want him back their bullets took his best friends in saigon our lawyers took his wife his kids no regrets In a time I don't remember, in a war he can't forget. He cried, forgive me for what I've done there, because I never meant the things I did. That song is about his brother, but it's about tens of thousands of other men that feel the same way. They got the same thing from life. In return for their service, their lawyers took their kids from them. And their country didn't want them back. I mean, we went from a pretty bad time in the 70s to a pretty good time in the 80s. And uh, we just didn't want to think about it. No one wants to think about losing. And whether we want to admit it or not, and people say, well, we won the battles. We didn't lose. No, we lost. The objective was to maintain a free and independent South Vietnam. We lost. Period. And in, in everybody's heart, they really knew that, and they just turned their backs. And then in the 80s, we made movies about what great heroes they were, but we still ignored the men themselves. I've always... Uh, really like the intro to this song, too, though, where he's talking about the preacher going, you know, steals the money from his hand, tells him to believe in Jesus' and, and, you know, there's a lot of different televangelists have been seen as this. And there's one particular one in the video, but I think it's universal. That people can pretend to be something that they're not. That they're not. And use it to their own personal gain. And then... What I've always found interesting, though, because I think it's very great composition, but is the closing verse. I drive by the homeless sleeping on a cold, dark street, like bodies in an open grave, underneath the broken old neon sign that used to read "Jesus Saves." A mile away live the rich folks, and I see how they're living it up, while the poorly eat from hand to mouth. The rich drink from a golden cup, and it just makes me wonder why so many lose and so few win, and give me something to believe in. True words, but penned by a man who at this point had hit it big. This multi, multi, multi multi-millionaire at this point. He is the rich folks. I wondered if he saw conflict there. And as I've matured and I look at that, I actually see it as a little bit higher level of philosophy. None of us can fix the problem all of those poor folks living there have. And... It makes me wonder why so many lose and so few win. And I wonder if more people could win if we did things a little bit differently. Not necessarily take from those that won to give to those that lost, but couldn't we do better? Couldn't we do better at teaching people how to win? Or not taking from them so that they become those who have lost? Because there's a lot of people out there on the streets who used to have normal lives, great lives. Sometimes a system just destroys people. Not all of them, but some. And people always say, well, those people have made poor decisions in their life. Tell me a man who's done anything meaningful who hasn't made poor decisions in his life. God knows I have. I've been lucky enough in some instances for them not to cost me too much. And smart enough in some instances to fix them. But I won't look down at the others who were not so lucky or maybe just couldn't figure out how to deal with the problem they created themselves in the right way and ended up in a spiral. This song makes me think about all of those things and more. I think it's one of the most powerful songs ever written, and I do kind of see it as a bookend to this whole era of rock from the 1980s. Hope you enjoy it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
3: About the promised lands
2: He tells me Believing Jesus Steals the money From my hands Some say He was a good man
3: Lord I think He's seen.
2: I gone, I lost his wife, his kids, no regrets. Any time I don't remember, and a war he can't forget. He cried, Forgive me for what I done there. Cause I never meant the things I did. And give me something to me. But there's a lot of a song to believe in. Oh, Lord, arise! Right. My best friend died a lonely man some Palm Springs a hotel room. I got the call last Christmas Eve, and they told me. The broken old neon sign
0: used to read Jesus' sings.
1: Something to believe in